the media landscape in America is busted. Americans are on to the omissions, the half-truths, and the outright lies being propagated against we, the people. Your host, Tom Harris, will bring you the other side of the story. bears have become the poster child of human-caused climate change. We're constantly told that they'll soon become extinct if we don't do something to stop it. In particular, we're being told that the reduced sea ice is devastating our populations. But it might surprise people to know that the polar bear population is thriving. Huh, yeah, you're right. The polar bear is an incredibly resilient species that has lived in changing conditions, changing climate throughout history. But that, of course, doesn't fit with the climate change narrative. Our guest today is Dr. Susan Crockford, who will be giving us the real history of the polar bear and why activists have picked the wrong poster child for their cause. My co-host, Mary Jean Harris, will introduce our guest. So over to you, Mary Jean. Yeah, thanks. Dr. Susan Crockford is a professional zoologist with a PhD and more than 40 years experience, including work on the Holocene history of Arctic animals. Susan Crockford earned her degree, undergraduate degree in zoology at the University of British Columbia. She was adjunct professor at the University of Victoria, BC for 15 years. Polar bear evolution is one of Dr. Crockford's professional interests. She writes a science blog about polar bears at polarbearscience.com. Welcome to the show, Susan. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's great to see you. So, uh, can you give us an overview, Susan, of how polar bears developed from brown bears and came to live in cooler climates? Well, if you take all of the evidence into account, it really looks like polar bears um, arose from a brown bear ancestor off the coast of Ireland about 140,000 years ago. The way I think it happened is that a few fearless brown bears colonized the offshore pack ice and they, there they lived and ate only seals. And they mated, stayed out there all year round and mated only with each other. And that as a consequence, within only a few generations, the new population of early polar bears would have been physically, physiologically, and behaviorally different from their brown bear ancestors. They would have been all white or mostly white with shorter claws and a less aggressive nature. Their bones, skull, and teeth would have also been distinctly different. Yeah. So, so when did they become white? Did it take very long for that to happen? Well, that's all I'm saying. It looks like really the, the, the process um, seems to happen within only a few generations, probably less than 10 generations, and maybe as few as four or five. And wow. for polar bears, a generation is about 10 years. Huh. So oh, we're talking about 40 or 50 years. Wow, that's super quick, isn't it? In super evolution? quick, super yeah. quick. And it's something that a lot of people don't realize is that there really there is a lot of um, research going on on um, species changes uh, like this. And there's this re new realization that this process can happen incredibly, incredibly quickly. Mm -hmm. And you were saying less uh, long claws and less aggressive. Is that so the brown bear is more aggressive than polar bear? Yeah. And so that when you have places where polar bears and brown bears or grizzlies interact, um, the grizzlies are much more aggressive. And in fact, to the point where you can have a female grizzly 
which is half the size of a male polar bear, but a male polar bear will run like crazy away from her. Wow. So they have, they have actually the, the polar bears have kind of a natural aversion to the grizzlies because they're so aggressive. Oh, wow. That's amazing. So I, I was reading that polar bears are the largest land-based carnivore. Is that true? Yes. Well, they call them, you know, land-based because they're, because they're bears, but um, it, and it really varies. Some, um, some accounts or um, will classify them as a land animal and others classify them as a sea mammal mm. because they, they really can spend all their life out on the sea ice and never come to land. And so, you know, it's, it's really a, a matter of semantics, but yes, if you're looking at um, especially comparing the bears um, they are a lot larger um, in most respects from a grizzly they're taller at the shoulder and they can be uh heavier than a grizzly even the largest of the grizzlies yeah it's interesting one of my friends who was teaching at carlton they had a program where they would drop students in the arctic and let them navigate themselves through a certain region and then they would pick them up well this turned out to be a lot more dangerous than they expected because one of the girls actually was stalked by a polar bear for oh. a long time. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. They didn't rescue her. But I mean, I guess polar bears, even if they're not as dangerous as grizzlies, they're still dangerous, right? Well, I mean, what I'm when I was talking about um aggressive aggression, it's really the aggression between each other is that they're uh, between brown bears and polar bears, the grizzlies are more aggressive than than the polar bears. But certainly polar bears are more predatory than grizzlies they have because they eat only animals um they are um a, a carnivore and they're really um very proficient at stalking and that's one of the prime methods they have of hunting and so they they are very dangerous to any any animal or humans in the arctic yeah. What's the difference between grizzlies and brown bears? Nothing really. It's really more a matter of terminology. And in the, one of the main things is that in Europe, there are no brown bears or black bears rather. So in Europe, all brown bears are called brown bears. But in North America, we have brown bears and black bears, but some black bears can be brown. And so it gets confusing. And so there became a um, just a habit of calling um, some brown bears grizzlies, particularly the ones that live up in the tundra, which is where they overlap. So um, most often where you see polar bears and brown bears overlap, they tend to be in the areas where what we call tundra grizzlies occur so i will tend to say grizzly when i mean brown bear but they're really the same animal oh, okay yeah it's great right and so when they do uh you know research on the history do they focus more on like fossil evidence or genetics or i guess they do a combination of both is that right oh for trying to figure out like the origins of the bears or that kind of thing yeah, is what you mean? yeah, yeah. Kind of well uh, well yeah for sure they um they're looking at fossil evidence is a big thing and there's lots of fossils of brown bears and grizzlies around the world in fact um they have bears have one of the best fossil records of any animal 
but polar bears have hardly any fossil record at all. And you can kind of understand that if they're, you think about the fact that they're living out on the sea ice, if they're, they would tend to die there and then their remains would sink to the bottom of the ocean. And so their, their remains tend to be um, very rare as fossils. And so far we've got for um, really a, about half a dozen um, actual, like older than the last ice age fossils. So that picture of you that holding a bear skull, yeah, I think on your on your website is that an average size bear? Yes, yes, and that one actually is a cast of a of a polar bear skull. Oh, okay. So, okay. Yeah, yeah. So uh, another thing we were interested in, our Evo, is what's the biological mechanism behind the evolution of brown bears into polar bears? Well, the theory that I have uh, developed to explain this involves thyroid hormone metabolism. And, you know, people may think about it and understand it in terms of their own biology is that the thyroid gland is in the throat in humans and in most mammals as well. And in this, um, and to understand how this works, you kind of have to understand what thyroid hormone is and what it does. And that thyroid hormone is responsible um, for all steps involved in basic metabolism. So, you know, turning food into fuel and into fat and then back into energy again. Um, And it also controls brain and body growth from the moment um, of conception of an embryo. Um, It controls the growth and development of the skeleton and the teeth. Um, it's required by an embryo even before its own thyroid gland is developed. So all the thyroid hormone that the embryo needs for development is coming from its mother. So that's it. That's an important um, consideration here because it means that you've got a control mechanism going from one generation to another um, in a way that doesn't involve genes. Um, and in animals that don't have a placenta that are laying eggs, for example, the thyroid hormone that they need for this growth and development, um, comes from the egg yolk. Mm. And it's, you know, thyroid hormone is a really interesting, um, molecule because it has the same structure in all organisms and it's, can be absorbed through the digestive tract from food as if it was a vitamin. And this is an important consideration and it's one of the things that makes thyroid hormone unique. And it's a protein-like molecule with an iodine, with iodine atoms attached. And the iodine is what makes this molecule unique. And most plants need iodine as well. um, And they store it actually as thyroid hormone even though they don't have a thyroid gland or an endocrine system. And that's because there is a natural sort of biochemical affinity for all the components of thyroid hormone as a molecule and that the iodine atoms are naturally attracted to it. And so that's how plants will store it, which means that an animal eating a plant 
with thyroid hormone st stored in it will actually be consuming thyroid hormone that can be um, absorbed through its digestive tract. And these connections to the environment are kind of important overall to the understanding of it. Um, and thyroid hormone is also controlling all kinds of other things like hibernation, the annual molting of hair and the coat color tra transformations uh, that you have from season to season, the transformation of a tadpole to a, an adult frog, for example, is controlled by thyroid hormone. Hmm. Um, so you have these kinds of things going on and it really, it's that important that thyroid hormone production really affects virtually all bodily functions in a time and a dose dependent manner. And because it's kind of the body's hormone coordinator. Mm -hmm. But how does that relate to evolution from brown to polar bears? Well, it kind of works like this in that the, what, what I'm looking at is the evidence that thyroid hormone is intimately involved in the stress response. Mm -hmm. And so when we're looking at talk, when I was saying that um, fearless brown bears invaded the ice age or the sea ice habitat, that is animals that have a very low stress tolerance as controlled by thyroid hormone. And that thyroid hormone is actually produced like all hormones are in a, the, a rhythmic pattern that has, you know, highs and lows uh, and um, sort of different rates throughout the day. And you could maybe think of it like a song that has high loads and no loads and, you know, different pauses and, and rates going through a song. And so these uh, rhythms of thyroid hormone production um, seem to be species specific so that you would have one rhythm or song of this hormone for each individual species, but that within that you would have individual variation and that this individual variation is what's going to control differences in things like um, size, you know, that one individual is going to be bigger than another, the coat color, any coat color differences but also differences in behavior, particularly this response to stress. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is that if these only stress tolerant animals are brave enough to go out and invade this new habitat, then you create a population of animals that is physiologically different from the population it came from and once they start interbreeding only with each other, you've got a new population that has only a subset of all of the variation that was present in the original brown bear population. Mm -hmm. and, the, the, and, it's, and the fact that this um, mechanism, the thyroid hormone is so involved in um, growth and development of the fetus is why it you've got so many changes going on so quickly in a few short generations and why you will you would end up with early polar bears being so different from brown bears in only a few generations. Yeah. Does that I make guess, sense? 
yeah, and and I guess the offspring that, that that were not stress tolerant wouldn't have as good a chance of surviving. So there'd be a certain amount of natural selection involved there too. Right? There would be that, and or the other possibility that occurs to me is that um, if they're still close to land, they could always go back. Mm-hmm. In the in the early stages, they could always go back and take their chances in the, you know, stressful environment or the, you know, challenging environment that they um, left from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Now, I, I guess um, we have to look at how Arctic sea ice affects polar bears because people get the impression that they need sea ice the year long. If you have a summer with no sea ice. That they're all going to die, but <laughs> that's not really true, is it? No, no, really. Uh, you know, the the bears need. It, you really have to go back to the seals because the seals are what the bears are primarily eating, and the seals need ice from about March until the middle of May, okay. and they need the ice to give birth on and they mate and mate. And they, mm-hmm. they give birth and they mate shortly afterwards. So the process, you know, the giving birth and mating happens in a very tight time frame. Um, and as long as there is sea ice during that time period, then there's going to be lots of baby seals for the polar bears to eat. And they consume at least two thirds of their yearly calories during that spring feeding period. So that's really what gets them through the summer when the ice in most areas disappears um, and they go into a fasting mode. So as long as they're good and fat going into the summer period, then uh, it doesn't bother them. That's part of their, you know, usual routine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, Bob Carter used to show a slide of polar bears and he said, well, you know, this must be virtual reality. Bob Carter was the ICSC chief scientist for quite a long time, but he's passed away. He's a, was an oceanographer and geologist in, in Australia. But he showed this image of polar bears on the ice. And he said, well, this must be virtual reality because if polar bears were as fragile as people say, they would have disappeared. And then he shows a graph of when the Arctic was warmer and there was less sea ice. He said, they would have disappeared and gone extinct here, 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 and here, you know? So, I mean, the conditions they're facing now are not extraordinary in their evolutionary history, are they? No, not at all. Not at all. And we know if we're, if we're looking, if I'm correct, that um, the bears arose as a distinct species 140,000 years ago, then we know that they survived at least one very warm period in the Eemian time, about 120 to 130,000 years ago. And then another one at the um, beginning of the Holocene. And that the Holocene warm period lasted for about 1600 years. So it was, you know, we had the ice age and then it got very warm, very fast. And then it got colder again. So that very warm period at the beginning of the Holocene was also much warmer than it is now. Mm-hmm. So Bob was right. He said it must be virtual reality if the bears were that sensitive. <laughs> and then he shows them sitting there with a the cartoon there, you know, frying a penguin over a fire, just having a great time. <laughs> yeah. I guess just before we go to our break, then it sounds like polar bears are a pretty tough animal. I mean, in comparison with, you know, others that might be too fragile to survive they have put up with a great deal over their evolutionary history. Well, exactly. And, and really my view of it is that, that 
that their evolutionary history has has shaped their um, adaptability. If they didn't have the in, innate ability to um, have this kind of both um, flexibility in terms of behavior and movement and that kind of thing, they just wouldn't have survived. And yeah, they're here. So the bottom line is they must be pretty tough because I mean, those conditions were warmer than we have now. Some of the ones you listed, right? Exactly. And the thing is that, that, as I said, if, if they, as long as they have um, ice in that late winter to early spring period, even if the ice disappears over the summer, it's still going to come back in the fall. And there, there is another feeding period that comes in the fall because uh, seals are attracted to the edge of the ice when it starts to form. So they get a chance to sort of top up before winter. Yeah. After the break, I'm hoping we can go into the actual numbers because we're told that, you know, their numbers are dwindling. And you look at even at the World Economic Forum. I mean, they're talking about numbers dwindling. Can we go into the different subpopulations and the kind of numbers uh, after the break, Susan? Sure. Yep. Okay, good. So stay tuned. We'll be right back with polar bear zoologist Dr. Susan Crockford after the break. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. You've heard Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company discuss the harmful effects of spike protein in your body, and now they found the solution. The miracle enzyme natokinase. Their spike support formula contains natokinase the most compelling and scientifically supported approach to safely clear spike protein out of the body. What's more, spike support is optimized with other all-natural, non-GMO ingredients, like dandelion root, to help prevent spike protein from binding to your cells. Everyone should take daily spike support so you can feel your best. America Out Loud listeners can go to outloudcare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years. Brush, floss, repeat. We're told to use fluoride, which doesn't really address the acid-creating bacteria. That is where the dentist-recommended Spry Dental Defense System shines. Spry products contain xylitol, a natural sugar, which helps get rid of those nasty, smelly, acid-creating bacteria in our mouth. The best way to care for your teeth and gums is by using Spry. The Spry Dental Defense System has a wide variety of products, toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and chewing gums that are designed to work together to keep your teeth clean and mouth healthy and smelling sweet all day long. To get your oral care back on track in an easy, effective, and very tasty way, switch to Spry today. Ask your dentist about Xylitol and the Spry products. Spry can be found online and at all fine natural product retailers. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's fast-paced digital age makes it tougher. You're not alone. Poor sleep affects over 70% of us. The CDC even labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake refreshed. 
finished. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep using calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Over a thousand reviews with an average star rating of over 4.4 proves it works. Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. World-class care from doctors you can trust. All from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. The Wellness Company's chief medical board designed every supplement and medical protocol with your health in mind. From groundbreaking supplements like the Spike Support Formula to unique care like Freedom from Big Pharma. Join a healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interest of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be, with a company that shares your values. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. We are fighting the ultimate fight between good and evil. AmericaOutloud.com replaces groupthink with innovative think. Well, it was Walt Whitman, the poet, who said, Keep your face always toward the sunshine, and shadows will fall behind you. America Out Loud Talk Radio. The liberty and justice for all. Back with Dr. Susan Crockford, a polar bear zoologist who's written a new book. And check it out at polarbearscience.com. And Susan will talk about, well, the numbers of polar bears. We're constantly told that their numbers are dwindling, that this is an endangered species. Susan, what's really happening with respect to polar bear populations in different parts of the Arctic? Well, so far, um, it looks like the populations have gone up um, at least by about 16 to 20% overall, but it depends on how you how you um, look at the different numbers and how those are calculated. But one thing we know for sure is the populations overall have not declined uh, as expected. And, and so it, you know, it really calls into question some of these um, predictions of imminent catastrophe and you know, you just there's been some misleading um, statements and whatnot over the years about what's happening, and it really has to be looked at in a bit more detail. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and you divide the Arctic into various regions. I guess they all have little microclimates, and 
How are they faring in these different regions? Well, it, it really depends. There's, there's one, one region that gets a lot of attention by biologists and therefore in the media is uh, the Western side of Hudson Bay. Now that population has been under study since the 1960s. So it's, it has the longest um, series of da data, um, which makes it valuable for that reason. But in that area, the ice disappears for at least four months of the year and has done as far as we know, like since it's been under study. So the bears there are forced onto shore for at least four months every summer. But then you've got other, other populations where sim something similar happens, the ice retreats in the summer, but they're only on shore for a month or two months or three months. Mm -hmm. And other in other areas, the bears actually, instead of going onto land, because they're close to the um, mass of ice that stays in the Arctic basin, they, they go out onto that ice and stay there over the summer. So they never come to land at all. Mm -hmm. So there's really a difference in, you know, in these areas, according to how the ice in the summer behaves. And that's the big difference. I see numbers that say that since the 1960s, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I have a feeling I am, <laughs> that the numbers of polar bears have increased by a factor of four or five in total. But you're well, saying it's it's something early. like that, but maybe more um, on the yeah four or five, because the um, the estimates that we have that were based on the best knowledge that biologists had at the time for the 1960s were between 5,000 and 15,000. So wow. I, take the, I take the average and, and say that a reasonable, a reasonable sort of starting line or a baseline um, is about 10,000 for that period. And now we're looking at, by my calculations, about 39,000 cool. wow. by official standards you know, the, the, the way the biologists like to undercount things, the, the maximum would be about 31,000. Ah, so, you know, high. somewhere, you know, in the three to five times, but definitely there are more bears now than there were in the 60s. And no one disputes that. Mm -hmm. So it the like, question is how much? Yeah, it sounds like then the polar bear is an appropriate image for a bogus movement that says that the polar bear is risk, at risk. It's not really at risk, is it? Well, you know, the, uh, the, 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 this risk assessment is all based on models. And that's the, that's the problem, is that the, the models that the biologists are putting together are based on climate models. And though they're using the most um, worst-case scenario models that are produced by the climate scientists because that gives them the most dramatic results but also they built into the polar bear models are certain assumptions that we actually know now aren't true and and the biggest biggest one out of that is the fact that um, the biologists are insisting that feeding over the summer period is absolutely critical for polar bear survival. 
Mm. Now, I, I questioned that from the beginning because, in fact, their own data shows otherwise. And going back and looking at the papers that they have produced um, shows that, you know, that summer period, if bears feed at all, it's very little. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that they would insist in their models that summer sea ice is critical to survival just doesn't make any kind of sense. But it makes sense if you realize that it's only summer sea ice that has declined dramatically in mm. in the last 40 years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm not disputing that. There is definitely less ice during the summer now than there was in 1979. And that the, the decline is something it's more than 40%, somewhere between 40 and 50%. So it's a, it's a dr- dramatic decline, but have the, que- the question is, have the polar bears um, suffered in terms of survival or their health as a direct result of that? And that's the question that's really up for debate as far as I can see. So the models then sure. make two mistakes. Yeah, so the models make two mistakes. First, they take the most extreme emission scenario RCP 8.5, which apparently would involve like five times more coal use and all sorts of things that are pretty well impossible. So that's the input that's wrong. And the other is the theory that they need to have consistency ice in the summer. So both of those things would result then in polar bears being endangered, which I guess would fulfill their narrative that this is a climate change cause. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And is it possible for there to be uh, too much sea ice, for instance, if it inhibits the plant growth under under the water? Well, um, there's there is that. Yes, if you've got in areas in the high Arctic of Canada, for example, um, around Ellesmere, no, west of Ellesmere Island, um, where the ice there is really thick and doesn't melt at all during the summer, there's hardly any seals. Uh, there really is, that isn't good seal habitat. And as a consequence, there's very few polar bears, but there's also instances in other areas um, in Hudson Bay, for example, but also along the coast of Alaska in the Southern Beaufort Sea, where you can have on occasion um, a buildup of really thick ice in the spring. And in those cases, it drives the seals away because they they simply can't get through it. And you have to think about the fact that the primary prey for polar bears is the ring seal. And they're the ones that can um, drill a hole through the sea ice um, to make a breathing hole. Now they can manage to drill those breathing holes through ice that's a, a, up to about um, six feet thick, so two meters. But once it gets past that, they, they just can't manage. And so if the ice gets too thick, they have to go somewhere else. And if polar bears don't follow them, then they don't have anything to eat. And mm-hmm. so you can, mm-hmm. there can be created a situation where um, polar bears all of a sudden aren't going to have enough to eat when they expect it in the spring. And that has in the past um, resulted in starving bears. And that, that is found in the research record that polar, polar bear biologists have uh, produced. 
Mm-hmm. So would mm-hmm. the fields actually drown when they can't make holes? Well, if it happened very quickly, but usually it happens, I guess, uh, over a, sh- a long enough period that they're, they understand what's happening and they just move into areas with less ice. Like there was a period in um, the early 1970s, for example, where the biologists even noticed, the biologists studying the ring seals noticed that they all of a sudden, they were masses of them showing up in the Chukchi Sea and they had disappeared from the Southern Beaufort. And when they talked to each other, they realized that they must have moved. And, And then the people, the researchers on the ground where they're saying, oh, well, we've got these thick ice conditions and that that, that um, is likely what has driven them out. Mm-hmm. But at that time, there was also um, records of polar bears starving, like, you know, the, in, in a way that we haven't seen. In the kinds of um, phenomena that they were describing, of bears so thin they couldn't walk, like numbers of bears, like a bunch of them at one time um, in over a two or three year period. But we haven't seen anything like that happening since then. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like that's the kind of thing that can happen if the conditions go wrong. Mm -hmm. And if you had a year in which there was never any free, uh, ice-free sea, you'd be in trouble, right? Because wouldn't that affect the whole food chain? Well, no, because what what the seals and the bears retreat to in those situations are the edges of the ice. So they'll look for cracks in the ice because the ice is always moving. There's always cracks. And so they're, they're all attracted to that area. The seals are attracted to cracks in the ice. And so the bears go there to feed on the seals but also at the edges of the ice, like in the Bering Sea, where there'll be the edge of the ice will attract seals there as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's also areas throughout the Arctic that are called polinias. And that are areas that have, you know, currents and winds that tend to produce areas of open water within the sea ice. It's either open water or very thin ice where, these animals can uh, survive over the winter. Mm -hmm. But are there conditions that could exist where because of a lack of sunlight into the ocean, you'd have less phytoplankton than less fish than less seals. And that could be a threat to the polar bear. Oh yes, for sure. For sure. And, and certainly as I was saying earlier, we, we see that in the high Arctic where there's very thick ice, very few seals and few polar bears. And that kind of situation that you're describing probably occurred during um, the ice ages when the ice got so thick, in fact, in the Arctic basin that it would have driven seals and bears completely out. So they would have had to go into the North Atlantic and the North Pacific in order to survive. Mm-hmm. And they, in that those areas, then there would have been thinner ice at the edge that was, you know, more productive and would have sustained their lives. Yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of curious if you're living on an ice pack, where do you live? Like where, like, where do they have, where do they raise their young and, and where do they sleep? 
Well, the animals that, that stay out on the ice, they look for areas that have um, ice buckles up, you know, because it moves, it compacts in certain areas. And then when it snows, it will create areas where almost like hills mm. that are snow mountains kind of thing. And they will um, excavate dens into those those areas and make a den out on the sea ice. And otherwise, they just walk around, you know, looking for seals hunting. They just um, kind of walk everywhere. Oh, that's cool. So they actually can make dens right on the sea ice. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and certainly like the, the bears that are the, in the southern Beaufort Sea, some of those bears come to land onto Alaska to make their dens, but a good proportion of them um, actually stay out in the sea ice their whole lives. And that has always been the case as far I, as we I, know. I, I rarely see pictures of big groups of bears. Like, are they quite solitary animals? Yeah, they tend to be. And, um, you know, part of it, I think, is the competition and where you see them coming together is usually at a food source. So something like, you know, a carcass of a whale, for example, as long as it's outside the breeding season, um, then you would have them kind of relatively amicably um, coming together to feed on that uh, that carcass or things like if you get um uh, belugas, beluga whales trapped in a polynya because of shifts in ice where they're in a small space and can't breathe and bears will congregate and start feeding on those whales. Mm -hmm. <laughs> where are most of them located? In Canada or Soviet Union or, or Russia? Canada has most. And, and in fact, probably um, the most of the literature says two thirds of the world's polar bears are in Canada, but um, that's because the there's few counts of uh, the bear populations in Russia. And so those those the Russian populations are always undercounted when you're looking at, at any of those kinds of estimates. So right. Okay. So we already touched upon this a little bit, but how have scientists and activists been misrepresenting the data related to polar bears and climate change? to do with the sea ice or whether the polar bears Well, are as I said, really, to me, it's it really comes down to their insistence that polar bears need summer sea ice in order to survive when they know that, in fact, that's not the case. And, you know, that that's the that's the first part of part of it. Um, and then they also have been emphasizing um data from some of the subpopulations um, that really are outliers. Like, uh, as I said, the, the bears that are in Western Hudson Bay have been studied for the longest. So they've got, you know, quite a bit of data from that area. But the fact is that that, that area also is rather unique in terms of what happens with bears elsewhere. I mean, those are the bears that spend four months of the year on land, whereas virtually all of the other populations don't do that. And so they're, they're um, doing something different and it, they may not necessarily be representative of what's going to be going on in the rest of the Arctic. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, so sure. does that make sense? I mean, there's those two big things, I think, that really kind of skew the perception of what's going on. Yeah. So it sounds like they're kind of just cherry picking data. Yeah. Yeah. To a certain extent, for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, if people listening to this program are in northern Canada and they happen to encounter a polar bear during that four months near Hudson's Bay, uh, what should they do? Like, is there some way to reduce your risk of being attacked? <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, I, you know, the, the thing about um, polar bears when they're coming on shore in, in the summer is that they tend to be well fed, for one thing. And they're past the breeding season, which it, it tends to make them a bit more aggressive. And as time goes on, after they've been on land for a while, um, they see, they seem to be in a, just in a less, I don't know, prickly mood. Um, but there is always going to be some bears that are, you know, more aggressive than others or who haven't had enough to eat, young bears in particular. And those are the ones that are dangerous. And uh, so... Any, any place that's on shore where polar bears live, people have to be really um, hyper vigilant all the time because they could come from anywhere. And just yeah. this last um, this last winter, I think it was January, early January in Alaska, where there was a fatal attack um, of a young woman and her one-year-old baby. And there was a snowstorm and a bear came out of the snowstorm, she was just walking like between, you know, one building and another and didn't see it coming. Even though, you know, they had people, there was other people around. She didn't see it coming and it got her before anyone could save her. Mm, Wow. That's sad. You know, it's interesting. The Inuit, I believe it was, went to Washington, D.C. to testify in hearings as to whether the polar bear should be declared endangered. And they were saying the most endangered group were actually Inuit children because there were so many bears. (laughs) So I thought that was kind of curious. Here you had people who live with them, live with polar bears, and they didn't think they were endangered. So this is really a political issue to a large extent, right? Well, I I certainly see it as that, uh, especially for the Inuit, is that, you know, they, they are the people that are living with the consequences of having a large population of bears. And if we go back to the idea that there were many fewer bears in the 1960s, so they we're talking about people who are the age that you and I are, li- you know, gr- living and growing up in the Arctic during that time, there would have been hardly any bears, which means within their own personal his- history, um, they wouldn't have had you know, the experience of dealing with large numbers of bears, and they would have been able to go out, you know, camping and going out hunting with much less risk of encountering a polar bear. But now that numbers are up, they're trying to do the same kinds of things and and facing a much increased risk of having a, a dangerous or fatal attack. Mm-hmm. Yeah, occasionally I've seen pictures on the internet of a small home having been trashed by a polar bear. Is that yeah. the consequence of a bear being hungry, just trying to get in? 
Oh no, yeah, because they're they're always hungry. They're always going to be looking for food because food it you know is so critical to their survival, and they are so attracted to smells. They've got you know a, a very sensitive sense of smell, and they are particularly attracted to anything that is oil or fat light. So any any kind of stored food, but also any oil product, any vinyl, and you know, anything that's rubber hoses, um, antifreeze, all kinds, all of those kinds of products that is going to attract them. And they can get in there and destroy things like a snowmobile. Uh-huh. They chew, they'll chew on the rubber, they'll chew on the vinyl seat and basically destroy it. So that's not, that's not a fatal attack, but that might be that person's livelihood, you know, the, their means of transportation. And it's, it's an expensive piece of equipment that um, I don't know if insurance would cover that or if, you know, anyone yeah. would have insurance in that. Um, but, you know, it's, it makes it very difficult for them to continue their existence. Yeah. So you put in an insurance claim, the polar bear ate my snowmobile. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. So what's the outlook for polar bear population in the future? Well, you know, I'm really optimistic. I mean, have after having um, gone through this process of looking at the evolutionary history of the bears, um, it seems to me like there there is very little likelihood that anything would challenge them that they haven't already been through. And if as long as they have that ice in the spring period, when the seals are on the ice giving birth, then they're going to be fine. If if something should happen so that there was not any ice at all, like even in winter, then the bears would be extinct. No, no question. But, you know, that we don't have any of the climate predictions um, or suggesting anything near like that. And it hasn't it been a success story in a way. I mean, uh, like the concerning stopping over hunting. Isn't that one of the reasons that we've seen an increase in polar bears? Absolutely. And, you know, that really has been um, the biggest threat to their survival. We had we know that um, I mean, there uh, has been a de- there was a decline in the early 20th century due to sport hunting, and that's what led to the fact that the bears were down to about 10,000 animals. But there was a previous um, situation in the late 1800s to the early 1900s where it was actually whalers who were slaughtering the bears. And that one, you know, caused a huge population decline as well. So the bears have actually gone through two very serious overhunting sessions in a very short period of time. And my guess is that they haven't even really begun to fully recoup their um, pre-hunting population levels. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the last question I had for you, Susan, was, has this been personally or professionally dangerous to you to be saying these politically incorrect things? Because, uh, you know, certainly 
I know some of the scientists have had death threats. Tim Ball, who sadly has passed away, who used to live in the same city that you're in, in Victoria, he had serious death threats. And I'm just wondering, have you seen for your career or personally issues concerning you saying things that are not what the environmentalists agree with? (laughs) Well, yes. And, you know, it hasn't gone so far as death threats, but um, certainly I... I believe that my outspokenness on this issue is what caused me to lose my adjunct professor um, status at the University of Victoria. And and some of the polar bear biologists have really gone on uh, a mission to make sure that uh, journalists in particular see me as an unreliable or discredited uh, source of information so that I, I don't have access to getting um, any of my information to the mainstream media. Mm. But it turns out now that the way things are swinging, um, that the mainstream media is becoming less and less relevant and more people are getting information from alternate sources. So jokes on them. Yeah, exactly. And I should direct people to your website, polarbearscience.com. You're updating that regularly. I see lots of things in 2023. 20, Oh, yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, my my new book, as I said, is just out over the last um, two, two and a half weeks ago, is called Polar Bear Evolution, uh, a model for how new species arise. And it's available on Amazon. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I really do think it, it's it's something that brings together all all of the things that I've been investigating over the last dozen years or so because it's bringing in um it brings in the climate change issues because you can't discuss polar bear evolution without discussing and understanding climate change Mm -hmm. and so it really is you know the the uh penultimate um representation of my of my work Mm -hmm. for sure Mm -hmm. so what are your plans going forward besides marketing your new book which we'll link to by the way when this goes to podcast on on monday what are your future plans for research? Uh, well you know introduce yourself to a polar bear (laughs) (laughs) well i think i'm really too old for that but you know one of the things that's next on my agenda is a new novel oh so i i've written two two novels so far that focus on uh their science-based thrillers oh wow um that um focus on polar bears and um, I think I'm going to switch species this time and look at something else, but with the same kind of focus of being a, a science-based thriller. Um, and it's just a different change of pace for me to kind of move away from um, science-focused writing. Yeah. So this sounds like mm-hmm. Michael Crichton, you know, he, <laughs> these different books like State of Fear. I don't know if you read that. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Yeah, that's deadly. I'll put a link to that because it talks about environmentalists actually creating disasters so that they could point to them and say, look, look, that's climate change. Yeah. <laughs> but they, can't, they can't point to polar bear demise as climate change because there isn't any polar bear demise. <laughs> so well, exactly. Is- and, but, you know, I, I see these these novels as being another way, if if written correctly, that you can inform people who would never pick up a science book and it's really just a way of kind of showing through storytelling how these kinds of things come into play 
and you know how the different aspects of the biology and the sea ice and everything come together and how you can do that within the context of telling a story instead of writing you know a piece of science mm -hmm. so what book would you recommend as a fiction for them to read from you <laughs> well my first book is called eat eaten eaten oh no eaten. as as in not just not just attacked but eaten by a polar bear so and it's set in newfoundland mm. yeah we'll link and to that. you know i and i've had really good um reviews from that and it's actually one of my best sellers so mm. yeah I'll put, I'll put a link to that under the podcast for sure so our guest today mm. has been dr susan crockford professional zoologist with a PhD in more than 40 years experience, including work on the Holocene history of Arctic animals. So thanks so much for being on our show, Susan. Oh, it was my pleasure. Okay. And people should look up Eaton. Uh, it sounds like a pretty, uh, it sounds scary, actually. Well, it's good summer reading, you know, yeah. best to be uh, read on the beach and not, you know, in a lone cabin out in the middle of a snowstorm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Give, give you nightmares for sure. Okay, so this is Tom Harris and my co-host Mary Jean Harris signing out from the other side of the storm.